Welcome back to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm here with Dr. Monique Bidesi. She's an Associate Professor of History and of African and African American Studies at Washington University of St. Louis. We're here to discuss her book, Ja Kingdom, Rastafarians, Tanzania, and Pan-Africanism in the Age of Decolonization, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017. In 2018, Ja Kingdom was awarded the Wesley Logan Prize in African Diaspora History, jointly sponsored by the American Historical Association and Association for the Study of African American Life and History. It was also a recipient of the Anna Julia Cooper and CLR James Award for Outstanding Scholarship in Africana Studies, the top award bestowed from the National Council for Black Studies. Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, Dr. Bidesi. Thank you, Sharika. How are you? I'm good. Um, We are (laughs) um, in a colder than normal spring. Um, This interview is taking place in uh, kind of early May, but we have a sunny day where I'm located. I hope you're having a sunny day, if if not cold. It's not very cold, but not very sunny either. (laughs) Well, I'm very excited to um, have the opportunity to have you on New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, and of course, to talk about your award-winning work, which um, deals with a multitude of um, intersecting um, topics, which I look forward to us uh, going over in the course of our interview today. I thought we might begin the interview with an opportunity for you to kind of um, discuss your your background, um, your personal and intellectual background to how you became a historian and how did you find yourself attracted to this topic of Rastafarianism, Pan-Africanism as it intersects with Tanzania in the 1970s and 80s? So um, I will begin by saying this was, you know, not a book I planned to write. Um, I was doing a PhD in African history and went to Tanzania for the first time in 2005. And the point of that trip was to learn Kiswahili at the University of Dar es Salaam and to begin preliminary research on what I thought was going to be a dissertation on Tanzania's role as a mecca of Pan-African activity during the 1960s, particularly um, how it aided, how the country aided the liberation movements of Southern Africa. But as I, you know, started to move around Dar es Salaam trying to use the language I was learning, I was struck by images of Rastafari. I am from Jamaica. I was raised Rastafarian, and so I was just, you know, curious. Um, it struck me there were images on the buses that roamed the streets of Dar and in the artwork. And I was, you know, walking through the market quite a bit um, and started to talk to people, Tanzanians who embraced Rastafari. And I was really struck by one, how eager they were to talk about Rastafari. Um, and two, how really important it was for them to declare that they were serious Rasta, that they were Rastafari by faith. They really wanted me to know that they were not just fans of Bob Marley or smokers of ganja, but they were actually Rastafarian by faith. And I spoke to quite a few people and finally came across uh, a Rasta woman who said to me, 
you know, if you are interested in understanding Rastafari in Tanzania, there is a Jamaican Rastaman here. Um, you know, you should try to talk to him. He won't talk to you, but, you know, you can try. I'm willing to give you his number. And I said, okay, you know, I will, I will try. And I called him, did all the things you do when you're, you know, in the field that you wouldn't do normally and went to his house. And that ended up being a four hour meeting with Rasbupe Karudi who became one of two men who led the repatriation to, to Tanzania. Um, and, you know, after spending four hours with him, you know, Jack Kingdom was born in that very moment. Um, about uh, maybe a week after that meeting, he came to see me at the University of Dar es Salaam where I was staying and delivered a box of primary documents. Um, and that set me on a very different path. It was still a path that, or a project that turned on Pan-African linkages, um, but it was obviously very different from what I'd initially um, been interested in, in pursuing. And so <clears throat> in that moment, I have to say, I was very aware as I sat with Ras Bupe that I would not have gained access to this history had I not been raised in the 12 tribes. Um, I, by the time I met him, I'd left the faith commitments of Rastafari behind. Um, but, you know, not only did he immediately trust me, but he was also convinced that I was, in his words, sent by Ja to do this work. And his was a worldview that I understood. I know he would not have trusted me to write this history had he not believed that I had a profound understanding of repatriation as a religious journey. That was really important to him. And he frequently reminded me that though he understood the demands of the academy, and he did, he was certainly, or certainly, you know, led a life of the mind. He did not want me to lose sight of what it meant as a religious act. And that was easy for me because my family participated in the religious rituals of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout my childhood. And that was the group to which he and his wife, Kisembo Karudi, belonged. Um, and so, you know, it was, I think he could sense, you know, beyond things that I was saying to him, I think he could actually sense that I would really understand what was happening on a cellular level or the history on a cellular level. As for the repatriation, I also understood that on a profound level. The 12 tribes of Israel is the Rasta group with the most organized approach to repatriation. And at every gathering, the members of the executive would say the names of those who had moved or made the move to Tanzania, to Ethiopia, forgive me, um, provided updates and so on. Uh, furthermore, at the beginning of each year, my stepfather declared that we had one more year left in Babylon. <laughs> that was um, a part of my childhood. And I remember my older brother would always whisper to me that he was not going, <laughs> that he would not be going, um, which is funny to me as I think about it now. But anyway, my point here is my childhood was steeped in this search for Africa on multiple levels, including the dream of repatriation. And as I sat with Ras Bupe in his house in Dar es Salaam, um, I wondered, you know, if his life would have been mine had my parents made the move. 
Um, and I, you know, looking back, would describe it as a, a surreal moment. Um, and so, you know, it was clear that I would still be able to tell a history that turned on Pan-African linkages. But I did not really know at that time the extent of the Pan-African networks that the repatriation created. I was in that moment captivated by and more focused on the fact that this once marginalized group of people, people who were ostracized in Jamaica, people who were dismissed as crazy and ridiculed for asserting an African identity, actually got an African government to validate you know, what to many was the most elusive of dreams, the dream to be seen as African even though they were born in Jamaica, and to gain the right to actually repatriate and to remain there, to get an African government to even validate the idea of repatriation as opposed to migration, um, and ways to gain an immigration status that confirmed Africa as their permanent home. And of course, the wider context of Pan-Africanism in the period of decolonization also you know, allowed me to show that the story of repatriation had much larger global implications, which I came to understand much later. I want to unpack several things that you've laid out, and I want to begin perhaps um, with um, perhaps the way in which you were able to enter into this project with the serendipitous meeting with um, Raz Bupe. You've mentioned throughout your work that you you felt that you had to um, recognize and, and, and value the intellectual archive that the Rastafarian community holds. And I was hoping that for our listeners, you might want to elaborate a little bit about what you meant by this intellectual archive and, and unpack the ways in which you trace, as you mentioned, this, um, this Pan-African network. Right. Okay, so, you know, Rastafari, as I say in the book, you know, has also included in its rebellion within the context of colonial Jamaica when it emerged in the 1930s. It also, you know, its critique and rebellion included a rebellion against the colonial archives. And so Rastafarians have always, you know, consciously acknowledged the biases within colonial archives. Um, and also in terms of their reluctance to talk to scholars, historically they've not easily, um, you know, responded to researchers who've tried to really get into their heads about what Rastafari means or what they're, you know, trying to accomplish. And so there has always been this um, effort to control the archive. And so in writing this book, I, you know, began to understand that I was in a position to make an intervention in terms of how we write diaspora. And so to reconstruct this history is to understand that because my historical actors imagined the world and actually lived their lives on transnational terms and had a, an, an intellectual commitment to that way of life, that my research process could not be contained in any particular nation state, right? So in the same way that Rastafari disrupted the idea of a Jamaican nation state. It also disrupted the idea of a national archive as a way that we conduct research. And so in following Rastafarian bodies on their journey, I was also following the archival trail that they created. And theirs was a, a trod that crossed all of these national boundaries, you know, making them far less rigid and concrete. 
I could not have reconstructed this history had I not followed these Rastafarians around the world to locate primary sources. Um, and there were fragments scattered across many different places, including Tanzania, Jamaica, Trinidad, the US, the UK. Um, and I really don't think I you know, found them all. I'm sure that there are other places in the world that you know, contain fragments of this particular history. In large measure, it is an intellectual history and wherever they stopped, they were observing, analyzing, and documenting the ever-changing political situation across the Black world. Um, and they did so with the studiousness that has always defined Rastafari since it emerged in Jamaica in the 1930s. And so I worked with a range of documents, including personal journals, organizational papers, letters between Rastafarians and Tanzanian state officials, and other state documents such as land grants and so on. And I also used the letters between the Rastafarians themselves and other Pan-Africanists, including freedom fighters from the liberation movements, musicians, Black poet activists. And I was also in search of documents that provided, you know, the larger, you know, context of the repatriation, you know, that it, you know, began in 1976 after colonial rule had ended for many people of African descent in Africa and in the Caribbean. Um, and it brought about the rise of independent nation states led by Black people, a very heady and optimistic time. But though the nation state came to symbolize freedom for many Black people around the world, you know, other ways of conceptualizing freedom, such as Pan-Africanism, did not disappear and, in fact, remained alive and well. And as a result of the Pan-African commitments of leaders like Kwame Nkrumah and Julius Nyerere, independence allowed for greater Pan-African mobilization as African nations became the impetus for diaspora mobilization in this period. But these state actors were actually championing Pan-Africanism while also trying to figure out how to maintain sovereignty in their newly independent states. And so the complexity of this period turned partially on the fact that colonial rule had not ended in the Portuguese colonies like Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, or in South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, then Southern Rhodesia. And so Pan-Africanists were essentially engaged with the work of liberation, um, you know, and were trying to wage an anti-colonial war in what was supposed to be, you know, a post, the post-colonial period. And so the repatriation, I started to understand based on the Pan-African network that they had created, that they, I was telling the history of this you know, of the fact that they, as a, a group of people committed to a particular um, worldview, were making this, you know, move, this, they were repatriating to Tanzania, and it was the fulfillment for them of prophecy, and it was, you know, a political goal. But it also, I was also telling the history of the role of Rastafari in you know, the liberation struggle of this particular period. Um, and so it became a much uh, larger history. It became a, a micro history with, with serious global implications. And I'll also say in terms of the archive that beyond the written documents I, you know, went in search of, I also make the argument in the book that these Rastafarians on the move embodied the archive. And this is related to the fact that 
Ratas have always been reticent, as I mentioned before, and skeptical when it comes to sharing knowledge of a safari with scholars. And of course, by the time we get to my period, they had left, you know, documents for historians to engage. But they also, you know, took with them all of this knowledge as they went on this journey. Um, this, you know, they were always evolving and they were also producing new ways of being Rasta. They were moving through different locales. So they were stopping in the U.S., stopping in the U.K., learning about global blackness um, within those spaces, contributing to it and learning from it. Um, and so they, these travels on the way to Africa um, were very important in terms of, you know, thinking through diaspora. But the idea of them traveling with the knowledge or with this knowledge is at the heart of what I call in the book, the embodied archive that Rastafarians created. And it just, you know, as I was working on the book, I just always had this image of, you know, these people sort of traveling um, and really embodying the archive itself as they moved in and out of diaspora spaces. And then finally um, to their permanent home, which for them was, was Africa in the case of this book, Tanzania. As one of several Pan-African groups, um, the Rastafari center Africa in ways that are distinct from um, maybe other well-known movements uh, like the Garveyites, uh, for example. Perhaps for a few listeners who may not have a strong grasp about the um, placement of Africa and the religious tenets of the Rastafari, this might be an opportunity for you to delve into another intervention that you make very early on in helping to shape the contours of your book. Um, so you want to talk about religion in particular? Is that the question you're asking? Yeah. Functions? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So Rastafarians, the name comes from Rastafari McConnell, the who was crowned um, Emperor Haile Selassie in Ethiopia in 1930. And Rastafarians declared that he was divine. And so the movement is named um, for Haile Selassie. And so at the core, Rastafari is this multifaceted movement, right? That includes political commitments and rituals, as well as religious, um, imaginaries and, you know, also extends to popular culture, as most people know. Um, and so it was very, very important, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, for these historical actors, these particular Rastafarians I engage in Jack Kingdom, because Rastafari is a diverse movement. Um, and so I was keen on really explaining who I'm talking about, and that's really important, um, an important part of of the text. Um, and so religion is really, or was really, really important because for these Rastafarians, you know, very connected to scripture, the Bible was very central to their interpretation of the journey. Um, it was very important for me to capture um, the extent to which this was a fulfillment of prophecy, right? And so on one hand, I wanted to make the case that we have to take seriously religious imaginaries when we write about, think about Pan-Africanism. 
Um, and I also wanted to to really make the point that religion is an important part of intellectual history, not only of the Caribbean, but of Africa. Um, and so, you know, religion became really central, and I hope it comes through in the text, really central to this project of repatriation. Now, I'm fully aware, right, that for many people or many people who are critical of, of Rastafari base their critiques on the ways that this diasporic understanding of Haile Selassie or of Ethiopia or of Ethiopian history clashes with the realities of Haile Selassie's life as a man um, on the ground in Ethiopia, right? And I'm sympathetic to those. Um, and so when I write about or, you know, encourage people to take this seriously, it's not from the perspective of, or I should say not in defense of Rastafari as religion, right? It is though, what I am saying that my job as a historian is not to determine whether or not religious imaginaries are valid, but to understand why and how religion, not just Rastafari, but religion more broadly, why it has been transformative for so many people and what this particular religious um, commitment means within the context of slavery and colonialism. Um, that was a very important part of the project. And I will also say that I wanted to make religion an even more central part of our you know, discussion of Pan-Africanism because it allows us to see beyond um, rigid distinctions that people tend to make um, between, say, the radical left and religious people, which typically fall under um, cultural nationalism in very sort of flat ways, right? And one of the ways that I get at that or, or attempt to deconstruct that is with the relationship between Rasul Pekaludi and C.L.R. James. C.L.R. James became the individual who contributed the most in terms of um, financial support to the repatriation, more than 1,200 pounds um, to the actual repatriation as they tried to raise funds to aid in um, establishing themselves in Tanzania or in recruiting Rastafarians from Jamaica and other places um, to make the trip, right, or the journey. And so the, the point I want to make about that is, you know, C.L.R. James, many people think of that connection as very, very strange, um, you know, something that people could not have predicted because C.L.R. James was solidly Marxist, um, was not religious. Um, we could argue that he took religion seriously in some of his works, but was not himself religious. Um, and Ras Bupe of, Bupe, of course, was extremely religious. Um, and so, you know, it was important for me to make the point that we tend to think of, or many of us tend to think of alliances or coalition building um, as being based on, you know, being able to see ourselves in the experiences of other people, right? Or being empathetic, being able to identify with other people. And quite often it is about a larger commitment. It is about a larger principle whether it be a belief in human equality or a commitment to say self-determination, um, that people are able to come together 
to sort of support um, certain movements, um, which, you know, in the case of Rasbupe and CLR James, did not, they did not in any way change who they were as individuals in order to connect in this way, right? Rasbupe's letters um, are always really full of religious language, and they were exactly the same whenever he wrote to CLR James. Right, greetings in the name of the Almighty. Um, he would tell him to pray, even. And Sailor James, in one letter, would say, "You know, I really don't even know what your doctrines are, and I can't publicly support them. But I, um, but I'm very impressed by what you've accomplished and what you're trying to do in terms of the repatriation." Um, and so I think, you know, I'm hoping that the, you know, this particular history and the way that Rastafarians were able to create. Uh, Pan-African network um, that included what some might consider a motley crew, um, that it pushes us, you know, to think in more expansive ways about the role of religion in the history of Pan-Africanism. Well, CLR James might have been an unlikely uh, supporter of this community <laughs> in Tanzania, absolutely correct. But I have experience as to how um, the, the particular um, Rastafari community that you focus on, um, uh, the mm-hmm. Universal Rastafarian Improvement Association, how did they make their way to Tanzania? I mean, many of us would have assumed perhaps that Ethiopia would have been maybe the first place that would have been the repatriation site or mm-hmm. maybe even Ghana from the Nkrumah years. So how did Tanzania become the, the, the host of this, of this community that you met um, before um, starting this research? Yeah, so, you know, the repatriation happened within the context of the rise of Tanzania as a mecca of Pan-African activity in the 1960s. And the country's first and most influential leader, Julius Nyerere, was a well-respected Pan-African leader and world statesman. Um, by the time this repatriation began, you know, Pan-Africanists around the world were aware of Tanzania's reputation, and many Black power activists had, and others, had traveled to Tanzania. But it is also the case that by the time my historical actors in particular began to make the move to Tanzania in the mid-70s. There had been a Marxist coup in Ethiopia, and Haile Selassie, the movement's divine figure, was removed. Um, and so though Ethiopia remained the promised land for most Rastafarians, and you know, still so to this day, that Selassie's subsequent death and the turmoil in Ethiopia led some to explore other parts of the continent. And as I mentioned before, that with the rise of, of, you know, new nation states led by these Black leaders, um, that Africa became the impetus for for Pan-African mobilization. And that opened, you know, opened many other people up to the idea of other spaces in Africa. And so, you know, in some ways, it was a very practical decision based on what was happening in Ethiopia in the case of Joshua Mkaluli, the other Rastafarian man who led the repatriation, you know, he initiated this repatriation and it was, you know, based on a very practical decision. It was a very pragmatic thing for him. He was aware of Tanzania's reputation. Um, He was really interested and captivated by, you know, Tanzania's experiment with African socialism, um, you know, which was the case for many people around the world, not just Black people. 
And in his own words, he wanted a peaceful place to resettle. That is how he framed it. Um, for those who followed him um, and Rasbupe, after the Tanzanian state issued what was called the right of entry, the other Rastafarians who followed were inspired by the fact that Tanzania granted permanent residency uh, with the option for citizenship and then land eventually to Rastafarians. One of the things that I hadn't um, really made the connection to that your work really elucidates is that in addition to Tanzania at the time being this kind of model of kind of pan-African networks and connectivity, which we're going to talk further about in terms of state-to-state relations, um, their the project about Ujamaa, the African socialism, in some ways um, endeared um, themselves to Rastafarian communities as well. Um, what what components of, uh, of Rastafari um, kind of practices, uh, social visions that would have made Ujamaa a particularly um, attractive kind of political vision? Right. So Nyerere um, was a philosopher and believed strongly in the power of ideas and in the power of ideas as a critical component of decolonization. So his concept of Ujamaa which was his form of African socialism, was socialist in that he was influenced by an array of ideological, um, you know, he was influenced by an array of ideological, you know, ideas that we, or ideological um, concepts that we associate with socialism in other places. But at the core of Ujamaa was the idea that pre-colonial Tanzania was inherently socialist. And that meant it was based on communalism and human equality, right? So Nyerere was determined to chart an independent path forward after independence. And he used a particular perception of the pre-colonial African past to challenge Western dominance and as the basis for post-independence development. This was very similar to Rastafarian thought in terms of how they also used the African past to combat colonial anti-Africa discourses, racism, and capitalist exploitation. Pre-colonial Africa, you know, is also the impetus for the Rastafarian way of life. So Nyerere was as concerned as Rastafari people about the widespread idea that Africa was outside of the purview of history, had no ideals to offer the world, and had no indigenous culture worthy of respect. So he, like Rastafarians, I argue in the book, was concerned about the psychological impact of colonial rule on people of African descent globally. And, you know, they offered, a, you know, both Rastafarians and Nyerere offered an epistemological intervention aimed at restoring the pride and dignity of Africans and at empowering them as they embarked upon post-independence innovation. So as I point out in the book, like Rastafarians, Nyerere harnessed a romanticized idea of pre-colonial Africa. And I think many of us are accustomed to thinking of diasporic Africans as being the ones invested in doing so. But, you know, continental Africans also experienced colonial rule. And so one of the, you know, major points I'm making in the book about, you know, is about how continental Africans also contributed to defining diaspora. And in this case, it was a very similar way of defining that, similar to how Rastafarians um, thought about it. 
In addition, Ujamaa included a program of villagization, and this also resonated with Rastafarians because there's a long history of Rastafarian attempts to establish communes in Jamaica, starting with the commune um, established by Leonard Howell, one of the founders of the movement. Some refer to him as the first Rasta. Um, tried to establish a commune or established a commune at a place called Pinnacle. And he was trying to live what he referred to as a socialistic life, right? So my point here is that the communal basis of Ujamaa was very compatible with um, Rastafari philosophy. And so the idea of going to um, Tanzania to help the nation to sort of build Ujamaa um, and to work toward, you know, really helping Nyerere in terms of the project of nation building he envisioned um, was by no means a leap for these Rastafarians who were not only committed to uh, a, an anti-capitalist framework, um, but who really were committed to uh, a communal way of life. One of the most fascinating chapters for me in your work is um, when you discuss um, not just the kind of non-state actors, these these um, you know Rastafarians who are, as you pointed out, trotting their way um, out of Babylon, sometimes <laughs> other Babylon, um, before being repatriated home, but also right. the the state relations um, between Michael Manley, um, Prime Minister yeah. of Jamaica, and Julius Nyerere, and in an unlikely friendship but synergy that in mm-hmm. many ways helped to um, foment this ability for a Rastafarian community to be held in Tanzania. But also um, there were divergences mm-hmm. in, in, you know, kind of their um, competing kind of nation state visions. And I was hoping you might spend a little time talking particularly about Michael Manley um, and the ways that interacting with Tanzania um, also impacted his own thinking and vision of Jamaica and the ways that um, interacting with um, Michael Manley impacted um, and yet in, in ways that impacted the Rastafarian community there? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, you know, the book is primarily about how Rastafarians as non-state actors, you know, influence state policy, right, in a sense. Um, but state-to-state collaboration was also a very, very important part of the context for what they were able to do. Um, and this was a really, you know, interesting part of the project as, you know, it became clear to me that these Rastafarians also used the history of the political and personal friendship between Julius Nereri and Michael Manley. Um, and also just, you know, what it told me about the complexity of this particular historical moment, about how... Um, state actors and non-state actors within the context of Pan-Africanism interacted or didn't. And it was particularly interesting in light of, you know, the sort of division between, um, or the, you know, the assumed rigid distinction between statist and non-statist concerns within Pan-African practice after the fallout, you know, from the the Sixth Pan-African Congress in 1974. But to get back to your question directly, Michael Manley was heavily influenced by Julius Nereri, who was an older statesman. He read his work um, 
and was engaged with his ideas in his own publications. Um, he was committed to establishing, like Nyerere, Manu was committed to establishing a clear ideological grounding for policy. They belonged to a generation of leaders committed to the third world as a political project, to non-alignment in the midst of cold, the Cold War, to African liberation in the sense of um, really taking risks in an effort to support the liberation movement of Southern Africa, um, to socialism, um, different forms, but to socialism, and really to you know, a moral basis for governance, to a principled form of governance. And so they start to imagine the world anew and really connected in this way. They went on to visit each other. So, you know, Nerero went to Jamaica a couple of times, Michael Manley went to Tanzania. And so, you know, they made this relationship based on shared ideas, shared, you know, intellectual commitment. Um, shared political beliefs um, that that was translated into a really concrete, tangible relationship. And this is important context for the repatriation because one example is when Nyerere went to Jamaica in 1974 at the invitation of Michael Manley's government. Um, he, you know, received this really warm welcome. Many many Jamaicans lined the streets the moment, you know, from the airport. Uh, moving into other parts of Kingston, and he that included many Rastafarians, and he met Rastafarians along the way on the planned tour that Michael Manley's team prepared for him, um, because you know Rastafarians were a part of the communities that were, you know, in these agricultural communities that that Michael Manley used Nyerere's influence to design in a sense. And so when Mkululi went to see Nyerere and wrote this letter to him, you know, requesting that he allow Rastafarians to, in his words, resettle in, in Africa and in Tanzania in particular, he used this history between Jamaica and Tanzania to boost his case. Um, and, you know, when Michael Manley went to Tanzania, he, you know, received this really warm welcome, went to visit some of the rural villages. And so was very, very familiar with what Nyerere was trying to accomplish on the ground in Tanzania. Now, having said that, obviously, um, there are or were local specificities within Jamaica and within Tanzania. At the point of ideas, you know, they were very clear that they had very different local contexts and that, you know, they would have to adapt socialism to their specific local realities. And so, you know, Judith Nereri, for example, was very clear that Tanzania needed a one-party state. Um, Michael Manley was very clear that that would not work in Jamaica, that, you know, he supported a two-party state. And so, in, in, you know, in what they wrote, in, in their interactions, they would talk about these differences while also talking about, you know, what connected them in real ways. Um, one, you know, I thought that was an important point to make in the book, I think particularly in Chapter 2, where I talk about this, or Chapter 3, forgive me, where I talk about this connection, is that you know, it was important to show that even within this 
connection, right, within the context of shared ideas and shared political commitments. Um, that, you know, Julius Nyerere, you know, misunderstood some realities about Jamaica and the Caribbean more broadly in the same way that Michael Manley and other diasporic, um, you know, people, you know, misunderstood things about Tanzania and other parts of the African continent. So um, one example that comes to mind is, you know, Nyerere traveled to Jamaica in 24 and made the speech and he's talking, you know, to members of the People's National Party. And by then, Michael Manley had declared, you know, Pan-Africanism, that Africa was the root of Jamaica culture. He suffered for it in the local context. Um, and Nyerere is, you know, addressing Michael Manley and members of his party and makes the point that, you know, Jamaica you know, that Jamaica is a multicultural, multiracial, I should say, a multiracial society and very different from Tanzania. And his assumption was, you know, the very idea that Rastafarians and even Michael Manley in that moment um, opposed the idea that Jamaica was not a majority Black um, country, that the majority of, of Jamaicans were not of African descent. Um, that is, you know, what Rastafarians were keen to declare, as was Michael Manley. And so in that moment, Nyerere actually pandered to this idea that all Caribbean people, um, you know, were a part of a multiracial or a part of multiracial societies that did not have roots elsewhere. Uh, and so you did have those um, those nuances, right, which, which I argue in the book are, understandable and typical whenever, you know, we have global imaginaries that must adapt to local local circumstances. But those local um, circumstances, or I should say those misunderstandings of the local circumstances mm-hmm. did impact from my reading of your work, um, you know, efforts to have uh, repatriation of the Rastafari, because uh, if I remember correctly, um, mm-hmm. you explained how Enyere then states, well, um, we'll, you know, create a process, but only for those who have African descent um, who can come right. to Tanzania, right. Um, right. which, as you point out, is, is, is a, was highly problematic um, at the time, not just in terms of rhetoric of kind of national language and national unity, but on a, on a, on a practical level, which sort of is an entry into talking about, um, it's one thing to have um, people on the ground perhaps create processes that could finally um, actually envision an opportunity where there is a Rastafarian community that could be um, held to live and become members of the Tanzanian state. And then there's mm-hmm. the actual process of getting them there and the, right. the, the struggles. And perhaps um, you might want to elaborate on, on how that process um, unfolded. Um, sure. Okay, let me go back to something you said earlier about um, race. Yes. Um, I think you said something about racism in the context of um, those misunderstandings. Um, so I think about the discussion, my discussion around race, and particularly the fact that in the paperwork from the Tanzanian government, it was clear that when they issued the right of entry, that it was not just to Jamaicans, um, it was to Black Jamaicans. That was the, the language that was used. Um, and uh, I, I just want to clarify, I didn't 
or I don't see that as um, I wasn't thinking about that in terms of, you know, the misunderstandings we just discussed, um, you know, you know, between Nyerere and Mandy, for example. I thought about that more in terms of, you know, one, the ways that actions often contradicted um, words. So, you know, Nyerere was very committed to not, um, not using race as a way to 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 define who or who could, who could or could not be a part of the Tanzanian nation. He was, you know, making it clear that he did not want to reproduce a sort of race-based idea of who belonged and who did not belong. Um, you know, which he argued would sort of reproduce very colonial. Um, you know, race-based ideas. And so that extended to his understanding of Pan-Africanism, where it wasn't strictly about race. And so my point, though, was that even though that was his, um, that was what he would say and write about race, that when it came down to Pan-African practice, um, that race was really crucial to to (laughs) who could actually repatriate um, be allowed to permanently, you know, reside in Tanzania as a part of this particular political project. And I made the, you know, I thought it was important to say that this was also connected to the fact that the larger, um, you know, climate of the so-called post-colonial period in that race, Rastafarians and Tanzanian state officials could connect on this point because race, racial discrimination, um, white supremacy remained um, oppressive forces in the post-independence period. So, you know, independence was a protracted process and not this, you know, shotgun moment of liberation. And as a result, Pan-Africanism remained alive and well because, you know, the struggle for African freedom on various levels um, you know, remained, you know, a struggle remained important for Black people and remained an issue with which Black people had to be engaged globally. And so it became a part of this larger understanding that, you know, race was socially constructed, but it was a social reality. And I think Rastafarians also understand that. Um, and so that was the point I wanted to make about about race, the way that we you know, have these ideas, but when it comes to, you know, acting upon them, um, that race remained salient during this period. And then the wider question you had about what really happened on the ground. Okay, so um, the inevitable challenges, right, um, that come with the effort to plug a global imaginary into a local space, that's the way I think about how it unfolded. Um, unlike you know, the case for Rastafarian to repatriate to Ethiopia for a very, very long time, there was actually no mechanism um, for residency, right? And Rastafarians in Tanzania received, you know, the right of entry, which meant that they had residency, permanent residency, with the option to gain citizenship through the regular channels, which meant they would have to pay for it, right? But the process was, a protracted one. And so 
even though the repatriation began in 1976 and Mkululi had the first conversation with Nyerere in 1979. And then Rasul Pekarudi joined him a few years later um, and, you know, went to see Nyerere along with him, that the right of entry, the documented right of entry that they would then use to recruit other Rastafarians, they did not receive that until 1985. Um, and it was also, you know, just before Julius Nyerere actually stepped down as president of Tanzania. So in the end, it was, they received permanent residency based on executive action, and it was not codified to law. It was not um, a very smooth process in terms of documentation. So they would, they received the right of entry in 1985. By 1986, um, you know, they were raising funds to, for Rasa to leave Tanzania in order to recruit other members of the Rastafarian community in the West um, to make the move to, to Tanzania based on this, you know, welcome by the Tanzanian government. And so they envisioned a mass exodus and hoped to recruit many people. Um, and of course, this was not smooth. It was not easy for them to to raise funds that would, you know, pay for airfare and, you know, the trip to recruit people. And then also to build houses and establish a life in Tanzania. Um, it was a long process. Different stages coincided with serious political and economic shifts within Tanzania. As I said before, Nyerere stepped down. Um, and even before that, there were serious flaws in the state's approach civilization. And so Tanzania itself was going through some, you know, changes with a shift to liberalization by the time we get to the mid-80s. Um, though I will say Nyerere remained influential and the Rastafarians continued to benefit from, you know, the fact that government officials who remained in office shared Nyerere's Pan-African sensibilities, even as Tanzania was changing. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that there were just as examples of the types of clashes, you know, that happened as they were trying to translate this dream that was created and nurtured in a diasporic space. And they tried to translate that dream into life on the ground in Africa. You know, they would, in, in one particular case, one man moved into, Iman Mani was his name, moved into a neighborhood in Dar es Salaam and the local residents were not prepared. No one, no one explained to them that this foreigner would be moving into the neighborhood and they burned the crops he planted, right? Um, and so there were examples of those types of clashes where how do you prepare um, or make sure that you don't offend people in their local spaces? Um, you know, that was one of the ways that they, you know, struggled to make the transition. That was only one case, though. And so, you know, I think when I think of the difficulties, I think more of, you know, they faced epidemiological threats, you know, so the financial issues, malaria actually, you know, ended up taking two of the Rastafarian elders who had been recruited and who were very influential members of the movement, you know, more broadly, but then also became really important in Tanzania. 
Um, and then, of course, just, you know, family life, Rasbuse and his wife and their two children, the ways that, you know, this actual political move intersected with, you know, intimate relationships and marriages and children, that, you know, that was a trans, a real transition, you know, to be made. Hmm. Which I guess should be expected of, you know, a, you know, any type of movement to a new. Absolutely. 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 I've kept you on for such a long time that I dare not ask too many additional questions at this point, <laughs> but I, I do just have one that I like to ask. And that mm-hmm. is, have you had the opportunity, um, whether directly by going back to Tanzania or the UK or elsewhere to interface with um, the Rastafarian community? H- how have they received this this work, your, your book? Hmm. Okay, so I have actually not been back to Tanzania since the book was published. So, you know, the reactions that I've gotten have been um, through emails or, you know, through people um you know, that I met while I was there. Um, or, in, you know, the most surprising, or well, maybe not surprising, but maybe rewarding, the members of the Rastafarian community who have um, found me through social media mm-hmm. um, and have, you know, you know, expressed appreciation for the book um, or an interest in reading the book. So that's been um, rewarding. I did a launch, I did a book launch in Jamaica. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, be invited to do so at the University of the West Indies. Um, and that always, when, you know, people talk about scholars, you know, present on the movement, Rastafarians always attend these events. And so that was, you know, I received a really warm reception there. And so, I, you know, at this point, um, I haven't, <laughs> no one has attacked me yet. I actually expected to have some pushback um, from some Rastafarian men based on, you know, the gender trouble within Rastafari that I talked about. Um, but I didn't receive any of that either. I, I got the impression that, you know, people were really intrigued by, um, maybe captivated by, you know, the fact that, you know, this repatriation actually happened, that, you know, these people actually, you know, got an African government to really validate this dream and to say, you know, we understand what this means and to refer to it as repatriation. And so, you know, the presentation in Jamaica, I, you know, allowed them to look at you know, the primary documents, the letters between the Tanzanian state and and the Rastafarians. And some of those documents, um, the ones that are in English, you know, clearly use Rastafarian words that reflect their political commitments. So they would use words like resettle as opposed to settle, um, which, you know, I would argue was quite a feat. Um, I think they were also really... Um, appreciative of, you know, the seriousness with which I treated not just the religious aspect of Rastafari, but the fact that Rastafari was a part of, you know, radical networks 
engaged with the liberation movement um, across Africa during this period. And that even with all of the hardships that, you know, people were able to remain in Tanzania and establish a life, but also that the lasting legacy of this is that they contributed to Tanzanian nation building and by extension, um, you know, you know, Africa's growth and development, not only through the liberation work, but also through their individual contributions. So one of the repatriates, you know, became an important journalist in Tanzania. Um, Ras Mkululi was a professor at the University of Dar es Salaam who went on to be an accountant um, at a time when Tanzania needed accountants. Ras Bupe started a school for young children that was really important and influential. Um, and so they built community um, and contributed to Tanzania and really, you know, made what I what I felt as as the sort of overarching response to the work that made this actual dream a reality um, in ways that that you know Rastafarians find inspiring. Um, and in ways that really sort of validate, I would argue, um, Rastafari's journey from, you know, in the words of one scholar, the title of his book, from outcasts to culture bearers, but not just culture bearers, but also their actual contributions to African liberation in a political sense. It's been... A pleasure talking with you, Dr. Bedesi. Um, I could talk to you for for many more many more hours, but I I, <laughs> I will um, have to cut our conversation short. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Eriko. You can find a link to Dr. Bedesi's book, Ja Kingdom: Rastafarians, Tanzania, and Pan Africanism in the Age of Decolonization on a link on our page, New Books Network in Caribbean Studies. Until next time.